Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15. through 15. I'm going to call this behaving in church, because Paul is going to instruct Timothy on how things ought to be done in church. Now our context is this, in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul told Timothy that the Christians should be praying for everybody all who are in authority and so forth, praying for all sorts of people. So that's our context. So let's get started. First Timothy 2.8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Now remember, the context of this is practices in church. When Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, every place probably referred to the house churches around Ephesus. That This is the commentator Ellison says that. Now, why did Paul single out the men he wants the men to pray well Gill and Clark speculate that this he said this perhaps in opposition to the Jewish notion that the temple in Jerusalem was the only place to pray and therefore he's saying look not just in the temple in Jerusalem but in every place in every house church in Ephesus I want you to pray well maybe I don't know it seems like that's kind of a stretch to me kind of a wild speculation I suspect that he wants them to pray because of this word argument that he uses at the end of the verse. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. It seems to me the men were getting in arguments with one another. Isn't that what men do? You know, just, just, they got to have an outlet for their excess testosterone. They got to defend the faith. And they got to argue over very important things, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. And so they were getting in arguments, and Paul says, instead of arguing, I want you to pray. I think that makes more sense than to say, I want you to pray because you're not praying, because you're not in the Jerusalem temple. Why did Paul exhort this regarding particularly the men as opposed to the women? Well, John Gill says it's because the, it was the men who were engaged in angry argument. Have you noticed that? The women don't like to get into theological arguments. They usually just get up and leave the room. I've had that happen to me so many times. Friends of mine and ours, we get a little bit hot, you know, arguing over some important matter, either secular or religious, political or theological. And the women just get up and leave. Can't handle it. I'm going to give you such an example in just a minute when I get to First Timothy 2.12, that famous controversial verse where Paul says, I don't want the men to teach or exercise authority over a woman. I don't want the women to teach or exercise authority over a man. Paul says in verse 8, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Lifting up your hands was the normal position of Jewish prayer, as Ellison, Gill, and Clark say. And Gill and Clark say the heathens did that too when they prayed to their pagan gods. So that was the standard practice. It does not mean that's normative for us. We can pray with our hands folded, our heads bowed, our heads uplifted. We can pray on our knees with our hands up. We can pray on our knees with our heads bowed. We can lay on our face, face down. We can sit, etc., etc. Now, Paul says he wants the men to lift up holy hands. Why holy hands? Yeah, I've noticed that when something doesn't fit our culture, your brain just kind of skips over it, like there's brackets around the word, and, we say, and, and the brain just says, we're not going to deal with that. I mean, holy hands? Why would not Paul just say lifting up your hands? We would never say lifting up holy hands. Well, Adam Clark and Jameson Vossett and Brown say this is a reference to Jewish practice. They would wash their hands before prayer, thus making them holy. This signified that they had put away all sin before praying. So Paul, of course, has a Jewish background. He's used to the idea of hands being holy by being washed. He's not saying that you need to wash your hands here, but he's. But the idea is your hands are holy after you've washed them. So the idea, let your hands not have committed any sin before you get in here to pray. Walk into God's house with clean hands. 
If you're going to go into God's temple to pray to him, go in there with your hands washed, metaphorically speaking. Now, Paul says to pray without anger or argument. Now, there's nothing wrong per se with argument. Jesus and Paul made arguments a million times. But let me give you three things that makes argument destructive or wasteful. One, arguing over stupid things that don't matter. Is the world flat or not? Is the COVID-19 pandemic caused by 5G technology? That's the first thing. Don't argue over stupid things. The second thing is don't argue over things that do matter, but you argue in an angry fashion, getting all bent out of shape about something. That's a total waste of time. And argument number three, arguing over important things when the other person won't listen, i.e. casting your pearls before swine. I remember having gotten involved in a thousand million arguments over the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I took a subsequent, a subsequentialist position, I guess you could say. I believe that you get regenerated when you're born again, but then you're baptized in the Holy Spirit as a separate work of the Holy Spirit, even as sanctification is a separate work of the Holy Spirit also. Uh, subsequent to the time you've, you're saved, I used the five examples in Acts, I think i got a pretty good theological case, but then people don't want to listen to that theological case. They come up with all kinds of excuses about it, and then they start getting mad. So years ago when I was in college, I said, okay, you want to get all upset about this, i got better things to do than argue with you, so I don't. Now, since then, I've had occasions when people have asked me about it. Now, if somebody asks me about it, I'll tell them about it. And, and sometimes in China, with the, people weren't familiar with all the arguing and dissension over the issue. I would tell them about it then, and I've told several Chinese people, and some of them just won't, won't listen, so I don't talk about it. I said, fine, you know, you don't want to listen. You know, there's some gold down there. You don't want to pick it up, fine. Go sweat and labor over something else. All right, but there's nothing wrong per se with argument. So argument, Ellison says that the Greek word in the New Testament has a negative connotation. Argument, well, that's the same thing in English. You say, don't argue. Well, actually, you got to realize that some arguments are perfectly good. Lawyers make arguments all the time trying to, for example, get a innocent client off of a erroneous charge or trying to get a plaintiff to pay the defendant damages or trying to defend the plaintiff from unjust damages. You know, arguments are made all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. Philosophers make arguments. Theologians make arguments. Jesus made arguments. Paul made arguments. There's nothing wrong with arguments, per se. It's the wrong way to argue that's bad. First Timothy 2, 9 through 10, Paul continues, Also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel but with good works, as is proper for women who affirm that they worship God. Now, this dressing prohibition for women, notice that it's highfalutin stuff, elaborate hairstyles, gold and pearls, expensive apparel. That's not the stuff that the average woman wears. This is talking about rich people, women acting like high society, worldly women, as Ellison says. Now, Ellison says that these false teachers that Paul is fighting here and there in Ephesus they might have sought out rich, influential, and intellectual people to back their cause. And these women were backing that cause by wearing all that highfalutin stuff into the churches. And remember, the churches are meeting in homes, so that's even more reason. Why are you going to dress to the nines going into somebody's private home where things are, by nature, a little bit more informal than that? So these women are trying to call attention to themselves, maybe for the purpose of advancing false doctrine. We don't know. And so... That's obviously wrong. But now, unfortunately, there are some Christians who have said, see there, women are not supposed to look good. They're supposed to look drab. They're not supposed to wear makeup. 
They're not supposed to wear lipstick. They're not supposed to, they're just supposed to let their hair grow naturally and hang down loose, not supposed to put any permanent curl in it or some kind of hairstyle. That is not what the verse says. It is not. It just isn't. Now, this idea that that Christian women are not supposed to look beautiful is bunkum. It's fundamentalist nonsense. And to prove it, I'm going to read you eight, seven, excuse me, seven verses from the Old Testament where feminine beauty is not per se condemned. Now, there are verses that say that feminine beauty can be used to the detriment of people, but I'm not going to focus on those right now. I'm going to focus on the scriptures that show that it's perfectly okay for women to look beautiful. Psalm 45, 9, King's daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. There's no hint of condemnation of this queen adorned with gold. Ophir is down there in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula somewhere down there where they mine gold. Nothing wrong with the queen adorned with gold. Genesis 24:16. now the girl, referring to Rebecca, was very beautiful. Genesis 29:17. Linda Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Can you believe that? The Bible talking about a woman with a good figure, with curves. It's enough to make you want to be a Buddhist, where everybody's wearing a saffron robe. I don't know about the women. Oh, yes, they do. I think the women do. The, nun, the Buddhist nuns do do that. They wear robes where you can't see their shape because the body is evil. That's not what the Bible says. First Samuel 25, 3, the man's name was Nabal. That's the fool. His name was, means fool. And his wife's name, Abigail. You remember the story. David is wandering around in the desert with his band of merry men. And he helped Nabal shear some sheep. And Nabal didn't invite him to the sheep shearing ceremony. And Abigail's because Nabal got drunk, if I remember. And Abigail says, oh my gosh, David's going to come in here and kill us all because... We violated the ancient time-honored eastern customs of hospitality. So she saves Nabal's life by going to appeal to David. Now, this Abigail is said to be here in 1 Samuel 25, 3. The woman was intelligent and beautiful. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that women are intelligent. You know, this is what you hear today a lot of times. Don't call women beautiful because that implies that they're not intelligent. Well, I don't know. Logically, it does not. You can be beautiful and intelligent at the same time. Here's an example, Abigail. Nothing wrong with intelligent women. There's nothing wrong with beautiful women. Esther 2.7, Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman, this is Esther, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. Ooh, how about that? Esther was shapely. She had curves. Does that mean she was stacked? It could be. I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible translation here in case you don't believe me. You can go look this up. Job 42:15. No women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land. So Job's daughters were beautiful. Song of Solomon 6:4. You, referring to the Shulamite woman, are as beautiful as Tirzah. My darling, lovely is Jerusalem. So here, Solomon's wife, I assume it's his wife here, is beautiful as a city. Tirzah was a city. I think it was in Samaria. And lovely is Jerusalem. I don't know. Comparing your wife to a city, it just doesn't quite get it in English today, I don't think. But back then, that was considered quite a compliment. My point is, is that this verse does not say anything about women being beautiful. So don't even think that. Verse 10, but with good works. That's what the woman should be clothed with. Now, again, this is not to the exclusion of 
a nice hairstyle, a nice jewelry, or a nice dress, or whatever. But the important thing is that a woman should be adorned with good works. They were dressed with good works, if you will. Now, good works are the ornament of a Christian woman. They're not the spiritual lifeblood of the Christian woman, because we are saved unto good works. We are not saved by good works. The works are the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. We must always make that distinction. So what this verse says here, when Paul says the woman is to be adorned with good works, is that Christian virtues are what make a Christian woman beautiful. Have you ever seen a Christian beautiful Christian woman? There's nothing more beautiful. That old saying about inner beauty is what makes a Christian woman, which make, what is what makes a woman beautiful. There's no question. Look at all these ungodly movie stars and porn stars and politicians, women politicians and porn stars and women movie stars. They're ugliest and I don't care how good they try to make themselves look beautiful. All these Instagram influencers flaunting their bikini bods on Instagram so that people will think they're hot stuff because they got a sexy body. No. They're ugly as sin. I don't care how beautiful they are on the outside. Ain't no beauty on the inside. All it is is an enticement to lust. I mean, if women want to be treated as a sex object, they look like one. Oh, I know the feminists won't say that. They'll say I'm blaming the woman. No, I'm blaming the men too. But I'm also blaming the women. I'm an equal opportunity blamer. Now, notice in verse 10 that Paul says that the woman should be adorned with good works as is proper for women who affirm that they worship God. Now, Paul is giving down prohibitions for Christian women in the church. He's not talking about how women ought to live outside the church. Paul, couldn't, we cannot regulate the world the way we can regulate what happens inside the church because Christians have the Holy Spirit working in us, changing our nature, changing our desires and our wants and our activities and our practices and our behaviors. The world does not have that. So they're going to keep looking like that. So there's no use of you going out there and telling some worldly woman, hey, quit wearing your sexy, revealing clothes with bling all over them, attracting attention to yourself. Not going to do any good. We go to verse 11, 1 Timothy 2. A woman should learn in silence with full submission. Again, we're still talking about church. Now, the woman here can be translated in two ways because, as you probably know, the Greek word is ambiguous. It can either mean woman or wife. So it, it could say, it, we could translate this, a wife should learn in silence with full submission. That makes no sense. Because Paul, the whole context of this chapter is about behavior in church. And I can see a wife sitting there and the husband's teaching her and she sits there quietly in full submission to her husband. I guess that's possible, but there's no public to see what's going on. She's more likely going to ask questions and more likely going to say, well, I don't think so, honey. What about this? This is talking about church. Now, it says a woman should learn. This shows that women could learn. Of course they can learn. But back then, and at that time, it was often thought that women could not learn. Some of the best students I have are women. I try to teach people over the Internet, and especially Chinese women because they're so smart and they work so hard. And they typically are just a little bit more adventuresome, a little less adventuresome and want to go outside the bounds of Scripture. Anyway, women can learn. I know that for a fact. Of course, it does not say a woman should teach in silence with full submission. It says a woman should learn. Now, that word learn is not sigao, which means absolute silence. The Greek word is hesukia, hesukia, which means quietness, gentleness. The NIV translates it quietness. Now, I think that makes more sense because a woman should learn in quietness. That If, if it was absolute silence that she's supposed to learn in. How's she going to ask questions? 
you got to ask questions if you're going to learn anything. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I don't believe that it's wrong for a woman to ask a question of a male teacher in church. She's supposed to be quiet about it. She's supposed to be gentle about it. She's not supposed to say, I don't agree with you. I think you're full of it. I actually saw that happen at church one time. A woman do that to a man. It was terrible. It's awful. But no, there's nothing wrong with a woman learning in silence, in my humble opinion, with asking questions. If she does it in quietness with full submission to the male teacher who's or elder who's teaching in the church. Now, I should point out that feminists like that translation of quietness. A woman should learn in quietness because they say, see there, a non-domineering woman can teach. Well, first of all, it doesn't say a woman should teach in silence. It says a woman should learn in silence. It's not teach. So this has nothing to do with teaching. It has to do with learning. Now, the complementarian, you know, I like that translation of quiet, and I'm no feminist. So complementarian position does not depend on whether you translate that word as silent or quietness. I personally think quietness is a better translation than silence, even though I happen to agree with the feminist on that issue. Now, a woman should learn in silence with full submission. Now, of course, that word is a dirty word to our culture. I remember one time, recently I saw on the Internet a taped teaching, and the topic of the teaching was a woman's role in the church or something like that. And the pastor got up and said, oh, I tried to give this to one of my elders to teach it. I didn't want to teach this. And he goes on and on and on about how pained he was to have to teach. He was half joking, of course, but he really was. He was it was gallows humor. He was facing a terrible thing having to teach submission to a modern American church audience because they might get mad at him. Well, that's the way it is, folks. Feminists don't like this word. And I can say, well, are you going to follow feminism or are you going to follow the Bible? This is off the subject a little bit, but I just talked to a young Chinese woman, 32 years old. She was married to a non-Christian. She was not living a Christian life, although I think she was probably a backslidden Christian. At any rate, she befriended a feminist who had been divorced four times and who told her that she, the Christian, the backslidden Christian woman, was not being fulfilled in her life. She needed to live her own life apart from her husband. And so the Christian woman parked her kid with somebody at home and then traveled all over the world finding herself bungee jumping, windsurfing, wave surfing, kayaking. And she, of course, ruined her marriage. And she is still living with the effects of a terribly rebellious daughter. But now she is a on fire Christian and she's reading Christian books about what it means to be submissive to a Christian husband. And she loves the word submission. And I do too, because it does not mean to grovel, to put your face in the dirt and have your husband put his foot on the back of your neck and rub your face in the ground. The word has been totally evacuated of its meaning by idiotic feminist. Now, let me give you some other places where submission is used in the scripture. And I ask you, is this a bad word or a good word? Jesus was submissive to God. Oh, this is terrible. God's got his foot on the back of Jesus' neck and rubbing his face in the ground. 1 Corinthians 15:28 and when everything is subject to Christ then the son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected that subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all now there's a rip-roaring theological controversy over whether this submission of the incarnate Jesus extends post resurrection into eternity so do we have eternal subordination of the son to the father i don't know i'm not going to get into that but i know that when jesus was on earth he was submissive to god the father and that was not a bad thing that was a good thing and christian women need christian women need to understand that a wife submitted to her godly christian husband is a good thing 
How about this? Jesus was submissive to his earthly parents. Oh, that's terrible. Joseph and Mary just beating on Jesus, just whipping him and abusing him. Luke 2:51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. This was after he went. He was 12 years old and was in the temple teaching the scribes there. Joseph and Mary sought him out, find him, and he followed them back to Nazareth because he was obedient to them. How about this? Believers are submissive to God. Is that a bad thing? Ephesians 5:21. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Folks, submission is a good thing. It is not a bad thing, as the Christian writer Bacchiachi, Bacchiachi, I guess is how you say his name, I can't pronounce it, it does not include the idea of cringing servility, it means rather the respectful recognition of authority, of course that's what it means. Now the next question is, is the women supposed to live in full submission, full submission to whom? Well it could be the male church authority they're supposed to be in submission to, and I think the context favors this, the letter is mainly about church order, and we don't. Paul didn't want the women wrangling with the leaders in front of everybody be a bad example for everybody make the men even more passive than they tend to be because women men hate to take their leadership roles that's how sin screws up their masculinity and so woman wrangling like that with the male church leaders would not help as a role model in the church and it certainly wouldn't help the submissive christian women of which there are many a lot of women by nature are not so feisty, you know, and then they see these feisty women arguing with the male leaders, and they're going to say, ooh, that's the way I'm supposed to be. Oh, I feel guilty because I'm not like that. So I think that's what it is. The whole context of this last part of the chapter is about church order. Now, of course, egalitarians don't like this. Feminists don't like this. Oh, women have to submit to the male leaders of the church? There was probably a lot of wrangling over the false doctrine that was present, and so women can wrangle just as well as men can. So Paul's trying to get that stopped. Now here's another option that women should learn in silence with full submission to their husbands. Now of course egalitarians don't like that for obvious reasons. No, we've got to have equal marriages where the husband and wife lead jointly and all this other baloney sausage. Oh, the third option is, and this is the one the feminists like, the women should learn in silence with full submission to the teachings of Christ. That way we the women can submit to Christ. See, the egalitarians don't mind submitting to Jesus. They just don't want to submit to humans, a human man. Well, this is a dodge. If you're going to submit to the teachings of Christ, the teachings of Christ include submission to the teachings of Christ's apostles. And Paul was one of Christ's apostles, and he taught, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, which is the next verse coming up. John 13:20 says, Truly I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So if you receive Jesus, you're going to receive Paul, who Jesus, whom Jesus sent. And Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach exercise authority over man. So it's not just submissions to the teachings of Christ. It's talking about submissions to the teaching of the elders in the church. We go now to my favorite verse in the Bible, 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. Now, first of all, let's see what is... What does it mean to teach? What is the scope of that word to teach? Now, this causes a lot of confusion, confusion, so we need to be careful here. This, first of all, is what it does not mean, because women do these, these things I'm going to list. They do these things in the Scriptures, for example. They prophesy, they evangelize, they counsel, they teach subjects other than the Bible. Well, let me back up a minute. You can't find examples of that in the Bible. Every one of these examples you cannot find in the Scriptures. Let me phrase it this way. There are other things that women can do that are not prohibited by this word teach. 
prophecy, evangelism, counseling, teaching subjects other than the Bible, private instruction. Again, remember that we're talking about church stuff here, teaching in church. I don't think there's any problem with a woman teaching a man like Priscilla and Aquila were teaching somebody. I forgot who it was. Teaching women and children, Titus 2, 3, and 4. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Women, let me read that verse right now. Well, I don't have it right in front of me, but that I'll read it. I'll get to it in a minute. That verse clearly says that it's all right for a woman to teach women and children. So, And as far as prophecy, we have in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman should pray with her head covered. And we have other examples of prophetesses in the scripture, maybe not necessarily in church. but So we're not talking about all that stuff. We're talking about teaching. As Douglas Moo defines teaching, quote, the authoritative, authoritative doctrinal instruction. Now, one time I had a friend of mine who was telling me, well, you got a problem with teach, because what does teach mean? Well, you know, you got a problem with every word. What does teach mean? It means authoritative doctrinal instruction. I don't think that means... Now, of course, there can be some fine lines here, because let's say a woman gets up and she wants to testify about how God did something in her life and brought this certain scripture to her to, to instruct her and teach her, and she reads the scripture. That's not really teaching. That's just saying how God used the scripture in my life. But you can see how that could merge on into teaching very quickly. Again, whenever you have a, a, a gray area problem, it's up to the church. That's where the authority is. It's up to the church. That's who makes these kind of judgments. If somebody thinks that the woman is violating First Timothy 2.12, then the church has got to decide if she's doing it or not. And I'm sure, and that's none of my business. If I'm not in the church, it's none of my business. But if it's clear that a woman gets, just like I'm doing on this microphone right now, if a woman got up and did that and did it in church, and did the sort of stuff I'm doing in church, that's authoritative doctrinal instruction, and that would not be allowed according to Paul. Now, I've been emphasizing the prohibition of teaching in church, but it also says to exercise the authority of a man. I do not permit. Of course, the authority of a man in context of church, of course, is being an elder, so that verse would preclude women pastors and elders. And everywhere I drive, I see the Reverend Susie Smith, the Reverend Jane Doe, and I say, well, I'd love to listen to your teaching if you'll just give me a lesson on First Timothy 2.12. Now, we need to point out one other thing to limit. We're still talking about the scope of this word teaching, the scope of the prohibition. We're talking about church activities, folks. We're not talking about any other activities. For example, teaching women and children, Titus 2, 3, and chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Teaching men in a seminary, that's not in a church. I got no problem with a woman seminary professor. She's good. She's not setting a bad role example in the middle of church. Being a woman college professor, some of the best professors I ever had were women. I don't mind women reading the book that men might read. I remember a book by a woman named Susan Foe years ago where she just blasted. She was a Reformed writer. The book was published by Reform, Presbyterian Reform Publishing House, and she just blasted feminists. Well, hey, you got a woman writing a book to blast feminists? That's fine with me. That's not in church. Now, let me tell you a true story that happened to me concerning this verse. This is why it's one of my favorite verses is because it raises people's hackles because they're totally inundated in the culture. They've assumed the values of the culture that are anti-Christian. And so he gets everybody upset. I mean, the church is just eaten up. I remember one time I made some negative comment about feminism in a an exam at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, now called Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, north of Chicago. And I made a negative comment about feminists, and the professor, some young 30-year-old know-it-all, makes a, I forgot the comment he made on my paper. 
But as he was handing the paper back, he looked at me and sneered and laughed. And, ha, 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 what, what kind of Neanderthal are you? I'll never forget that. The seminary had just had Nancy Hardesty, the forerunner of evangelical feminists, to come to speak at the chapel services there. And, oh, it was all the rage. I found out later that new evangelicalism was, all of it was aimed at, was trying to suck up to the secular left in many ways besides just feminism. That's why I haven't read Christianity Today in 30 or 40 years. They're famous for that. I, I didn't realize that was going on at the time. I was there, but I noticed that there was more and more stuff that I was experiencing at this seminary that I did not like. And I thought it was just because it was individuals within the seminary. No, it's a whole mess. It was conservatives, Bible-believing Christians who were just gradually getting seeped in, having the the escharotic acids of liberalism seep into their culture into their theology and so forth well that was one bad experience another bad experience i had was years later i was in china and there was this young christian woman there a single girl who was a professor at the school and she was having a lot of romantic problems at the time and i always i, I love to give free romantic advice for what it's worth and she was listening to me about you know, she had a her fiance broke up with her christian fiance so anyway, she started coming to our little meeting that we had on Sunday night, the meeting that eventually got me kicked out of the university because of the communist. And she was the youth leader of a, an organization that evangelized students on campus. And by golly, she was getting people saved right and left. And of course, I like that. And she had some workers that were working under her, and she wanted to know about interpreting the Bible. She's a real smart, smart girl. And so I found Gordon Fee's book, who is a feminist, ironically enough, and uh, he, but he has that good book on how to interpret the Bible for all it's worth. So I started teaching this young woman and her, her followers, her disciples, on how to interpret the Bible. Well, we got to the section about, I forgot where it was. It was something to do with the so-called woman issue in the church. I think it was First Timothy 2.12. Well, all of a sudden now the pastors of her church, and this was an unusual church in China because it was above ground, even though unregistered. It had three male leaders, not women, started by a woman, but she turned over the authority to three male leaders who were eventually left the church to get their doctorates in theology. So you're talking about a highfalutin church. And one of these male leaders had a wife who went to the same seminary I did, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So it was an unusual situation. Well, they heard what I was going to teach on well. They would have to come join the meeting. I said, okay. And so my the Chinese young woman that I told you about who, who, who wanted to be taught on hermeneutics, she was translating for me. And we got in there, and I started teaching just essentially the way I'm teaching now. And all of a sudden, the discussion started. And all of a sudden, my translator heads to the bathroom. She's a sensitive woman, and she didn't like all the... She could tell the tension was rising. Well, I'm doing my best to stay calm, to stay focused, and I didn't back down one millimeter. I just said, well, what does Paul say here? What does Paul say here? And after it was all over, my Chinese friend who ran to the bathroom, she said she couldn't stand the tension and all. And then later she forwarded to me an article by Douglas Moo. Now, Douglas Moo, of course, is the well-known evangelical theologian. He's written a lot on law. He's basically a New Covenant theologian, and he's really high up there in evangelical scholarly circles. And ironically, he took the same position that I do on this issue, as well as New Covenant Theology. 
And, and ironically, he was at the seminary when I was there, but I didn't. I never met him. Didn't know who he was. But at any rate, he he took the same position I do. And these three THD professors sent me an article through my Chinese friend. Sent me an article, which basically backed up everything I said, written by Douglas Moe. And I think that's because the Chinese love to help you save face. They realize they came in there loaded for bear, and they realize they could have embarrassed me in front of all those people. They didn't, but they were coming close, and so they they gave me an article. I don't know whether they believed the article, but they sent it. That's the way Chinese do. They can they can fight you to the death, but by God, they're gonna keep a smile on their face, and they're gonna give you a big banquet. I remember one time in Tianjin, I was treated to this huge banquet with a friend of mine. We were going to teach these young Chinese students about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Oh, no. And we were stopped from doing that. Not by a church now, but just by the mentor of this young Chinese woman who had no ecclesiastical authority over her or over us. But by golly, he stopped us, but he gave us a big meal to compensate us for our time and effort to get there. But at any rate, that's off the subject. I'm sorry that this is a contentious issue. I remember also in my home church one time, I must have taught something on this or mentioned something about 1 Timothy 2.12. And one of the brothers there comes up the next Sunday mad as hops, saying that, by golly, his wife is going to speak in church. And I said, let's call him Bob. I said, Bob, I never said woman couldn't speak in church. I said a woman can't teach in church. There's a big difference. And he would not hear me. He goes on and on and on about how I said that women couldn't teach, couldn't speak in church. That's a different issue. Actually, I believe women can speak in church. I don't, you know, I'm, so I finally just said real loudly, I said, Bob, will you please listen to me very sternly and very loudly? I said, I don't believe that women are prohibited from speaking in church. Can you please listen to me? See, I'm telling you, when people start getting hot, they don't think. They turn their brains off. Now, what does this verb mean here? I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, of course, the feminists have got to explain this word away if they're going to get past this verse. The Greek word is authentine. It's an infinitive to exercise authority is how most of the translations translate it. Unfortunately, it's the only time the Greek word is found in the New Testament, so you can't go to any other context to narrow down the meaning. There's two major options as to what it means. It means to exercise, here's option number one, the feminists like this option. They say it means to exercise authority in a harsh, domineering manner. So it's okay if a feminist, excuse, excuse me, it's okay if a woman exercises authority in a sweet, kind, gentle fashion. But they can't exercise authority in a harsh, domineering manner. Because that's how the feminists interpret it. Or the other option is to the meaning of exercise authority. It means to exercise authority. Period. I don't allow women to exercise any kind of authority, bad authority or good, sweet authority. Now, of course, complementarians who believe that women and men have different roles and women's role is not to teach or lead a church. Complementarians like that definition of authentane, to exercise authority. Now, I'm going to read you a quote from the aforementioned Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo, he was at Trinity Evangelical Seminary when I was there, and he was friends with my wife, my wife wasn't close friends with him, but she knew him. My wife was also at the seminary. My wife-to-be. Unfortunately, I was in love with another friend of Douglas Moo's. And that girl, I give her, I give her, I called her Peggy D. D is short for her last name. She, she was my future wife's roommate. And I would go to my wife for romantic advice on how I could snare Peggy D. Well, that didn't work out. Well, it worked out, but not in the way I thought it was going to work out. 
In fact, I wrote my first and only country song called The Ballad of Peggy D, and Douglas Moo was friends with her. But anyway, enough of name dropping. If I'd have known how famous Douglas Moo was going to get in the future, I sure wish I'd have gotten to meet him back then when I was a young whippersnapper. But this is what Moo says about Authentane. The name of the article is What Does It Mean? Moo cites Knight and also Wilshire and concludes that both of those scholars, having examined the extra-biblical use of the word and its root, both have demonstrated conclusively, conclusively that the verb authentane was coming to mean during the New Testament period simply to exercise authority or power and, or rights. Here's a, a quote from George W. Knight, Alphenteo, in reference to women in 1 Timothy 2.12, New Testament Studies, Volume 30, and Leland Edward Wilshire, the TLG computer, and further reference to Alphenteo in 1 Timothy 2.12. I quote all that to show you that there's some scholarly backing for this. One egalitarian referring to the same TLG computer project concedes that Alphenteo, which around 200 B.C. had very negative connotations, had nevertheless by 280 come to mean something quite mild. He thus concedes implicitly the possibility that Alphantane merely meant simply to have authority during Paul's day. He then proceeds to argue that Alphantane means to domineer by appealing to context. Well, I don't know what context makes you think that women would domineering. It just means to exercise authority. He doesn't appeal, he appeals to context, but not to the inherent lexical meaning of the word. I said I was quoting Douglas Moo. Actually, this is a guy named Steve Motyer who is quoting Douglas Moo. But anyway... The word means to exercise authority over a man. You're not supposed to do that in church. Now, here's some wild feminist speculations as to the definition of authentane to exercise authority. These are speculations designed to avoid the simple meaning of the word, which means exercise authority, which women aren't supposed to do. Now, I got this. I believe this is from a feminist writer named James Watkins. I'm assuming he's feminist. I'm relying on my memory. What was Paul thinking when he wrote 1 Timothy 2.12? Well, here's some examples that Watkins comes up with. Instigating or perpetuating a crime. I do not allow women to instigate or perpetuate a crime in the church at Ephesus. Hmm. Here's another idea. I do not allow women to control, to dominate, to compel, to influence, to domineer, or play the tyrant. Well, that's the typical definition I just told you about. That's, that's the best way, if you're going to be a feminist, to get, get away with that meaning of authentane. But here's another example that feminists use. I do not allow a woman to commit murder of a man. Hmm. Here's another good example. I do not allow women to engage in fertility practices with a man, I guess. That's how you would translate that. What in the world is a fertility practice? That sounds a little bit uh, dicey to me. Here, here's my favorite one. I do not allow a woman to commit suicide. This is absurd, folks. Who of the Ephesian women in the church needed to be stopped from doing those things? And some of the speculations are mutually exclusive. How could a woman commit suicide and then engage in fertility practice? The wild lack of consensus among the feminists shows that they don't have a clue as to what the word means. Their ideological presuppositions keep them from reading the word in its natural meaning. Enough of that. Let's go to 1 Timothy 2.13. 4. Now Paul is given the reason why he doesn't want women to teach or exercise authority over a man. 4. Because Adam was created first, then Eve. Now, notice that this reason that Paul gives for his prohibition on women teaching and exercising authority was based upon, not culture, but upon nature, upon creation, the creation order. I say this is because feminists often say, well, things were different back then. Women were in, infused with all this heretical doctrine, and they were teaching and blabbing. 
but now today things are different. Women don't have to operate that way and that kind of stuff. They use all kind of cultural arguments. One cultural argument is that, well, back then women needed to be submissive because it would offend the society, but today we have a feminist society and we're not going to offend anybody by having women teachers. Culture. Let's let culture, let's let what modern American Western culture decide what we're going to do in our churches. Well, folks, Adam and Eve have nothing to do with culture. Adam and Eve had their culture in the Garden of Eden, and I'm sure the culture was changed by the time you got to Ephesus in Paul's time, thousands of years later. But Paul didn't appeal to culture. He appealed to thousands of years, at least thousands of years earlier. Adam was created first, then Eve. He was not appealing to culture. He was appealing to the nature of, of man and woman, man, of a man and a woman. Now, complementarians, of course, love this verse because it knocks the feminist position to the ground. But now there's a split amongst complementarians as to what Paul was getting, getting at here. We go now to 1 Timothy 2.14, and I'll show you the split. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. And so some complementarians say, well, the reason that we don't want women teaching men is because women are more easily deceived than men are because Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't. And you hear this all the time, and I don't like the argument. It makes no sense. Are we really want to say that women are more easily deceived than men? A lot of times you'll hear people who hold this argument say, well, see there, a woman was in charge of Mary Baker Eddy's Christian science cult, and how about... What's that name? What's the woman's name? White that started the Seventh-day Adventist. And on and on and on and on about how women start these evil cults. Folks, if you look at all the cults in the world, very few of them were started by women. Most of them were started by men. That's the end of that argument. Another argument against this view is, well, if women are so easily deceived compared to men, why would we want them teaching women? Here's the verse I told you I'd read. Titus 2, verses 3 through 4. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. So you want a woman who is easily deceived teaching the young women how to behave with their husbands and children, how to be a good wife and mother. If they're easily deceived, why would you want that? I wouldn't want that. That just cannot be. The, what Paul was talking about here was the fact that Eve took the lead over her husband and she exercised wrongful authority, and that's how she was deceived, because it says the woman was deceived and transgressed. She did both. She was deceived to think that she could operate on her own without her husband's lawful authority, and she could make a decision in her little family there, and it wasn't going to have any bad results. It was going to have good results. She didn't ask Eve about the serpent's offer of eating the fruit. She made the decision herself to eat the fruit. And so she went out of her proper order. And likewise, Paul is saying, hey, in church, a woman is going outside of her proper order, which is basically the domestic sphere Taking care of a husband and raising her children. Oh, that sounds so backward and so old-fashioned. I don't care. I don't care a bit. You can take your modern-day divorce rates and tell me how feminism is helping men and women live happily together. And tell me how feminist parents are helping their kids. Please tell me. I want to hear you. I'm going to try not to snicker. We go now to the last verse in 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. But she, the Christian woman, will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with good judgment. Now, this is a very difficult verse. I read a good article by, it was a young Christian college student woman who wrote this article. She laid out all the options pretty good, so let me read them to you. But to keep us from getting lost in the woods here, I'm going to give you eight possible 
meanings is what this could mean, being saved through childbearing, which shows you that the scholars don't agree. Nobody really agrees on what it's going to be. But I noticed that five of these options have to do with the domestic role of women. Five of these options emphasize the domestic role of women in the home. So let's look at them here. A, I've labeled them A through H. Option A, bodily preservation during the act of childbearing. But she will be saved. She will not die when she bears a child. Well, that's what's that got to do with the context? Absolutely nothing. I don't believe that one. Here's B. But she will be kept safe from Satan's deception by adhering to the domestic sphere. She will be saved through childbearing. Now, saved here, of course, does not mean saved in the eternal sense. It just means preserved or delivered, made safe. So Paul is saying she doesn't need to be teaching women in church. She needs to be uh, taking care of her children at home. And if she does that, God's going to take care of her. I think, personally, that's what, it, that's what Paul's talking about. I can't prove it, but I suspect it. Third option, women will be spiritually saved through the childbearing, not childbearing, but the childbearing, the special childbearing, namely the birth of the Messiah. Again, what's that got to do with the context? I guess you could say, well, if she feels bad about not being able to teach in church, at least she's been saved by Jesus, maybe. I don't think so. D, option D, women will be saved spiritually, even though they must go through pain and the curse of childbearing. Well, that, I just said saved means delivered in life but here we could say it means according to this option it means saved spiritually even though they must bear children in other words hey you got good news spiritually even though physically the news ain't so good because you have the pain of childbearing this is the so-called hindrance or concessional view again i don't know what in the world childbearing has got to do with the context of how you act in church option e christian women shall work out their salvation in the experience of childbearing but she will be saved. She'll go through the process of salvation, which is a continual process, and she'll do that through child marriage, through the experience of bearing children and living out her life. That's how she's going to work out her salvation, not by teaching men. That makes all right. This is called the, that makes sense to me, okay? This is called the attendant circumstances view. Childbearing would be an important part of her sanctification. Option F, she will be finally, ultimately saved by fulfilling her domestic role, which is the bearing and nurture of children. This is the so-called eschatological view. She will be finally saved through childbearing if she, if she sticks to her domestic role rather than teaching in church. Option G, women prove the reality of their salvation when they become model wives and mothers, the so-called evidence view. But she will prove that she is saved through her excellent characteristics that she exhibits when she bears children. Option H, Women will be saved by receiving a reward for the faithful upbringing of their children in Christ. She will be saved. She'll get a reward because she brings her, uh, she raises her children up. Well, options B, E, F, G, and H, as I went through, you noticed, referred to the domestic role of women, which is what Paul is trying to emphasize. He's trying to say this is how women make the, their happiness. I remember, have their happiness. I remember reading a book by George Gilter, and I forgot the name of the book. George Gilder's still around. He's become known as a futurist. But back in the 70s, he was writing stuff on feminism. And he wrote one of the best books on feminism I ever read. And I still remember it after all these years. And one of the things he said is, why in the world would women take which gives them the most power, which is having children, why would they want to take what gives them the most power and throw it away and talk about how much power they can get in politics in the, in the corporate world or the cultural world? Why would they do that? I mean, if you listen to ancient history... How many 
women got their power in the harem because they could bear an heir to the king. That's how they got their power. They had no power in those ancient cultures, no power at all. But by golly, they could have children, and the men would kill. I mean, they would constantly figure out who could marry their sisters and their daughters, and their and, and on and on it goes, because the wives had, that's how they had their power, by having children. Nothing wrong with that. And women, women today, if, if you'll talk to anti-feminist women, and you, it's fun to listen to them. I mean, I've read websites by women who just trash feminism. I love to watch a woman trash feminism because they say it doesn't make us happy. I just told you the story of that feminist woman who was divorced four times trying to give advice to the Christ, young Christian woman and, and just ended up destroying her marriage. Feminism don't work, folks. It's not the way God planned it. And if you end up with women teaching you in your church and being elders in your church, here's what's going to happen. The men are going to sit back and be little pussy wusses. They're not going to take their leadership roles. And, folks, that is a huge problem in today's feminist culture and in the church, especially in China. My gosh, 70 to 80% of the church's women, you go to an average Chinese church and the men sit back there, chauffeurs maybe. I saw one uh, meeting one time in a home. There was one man in there. Everybody else was a woman. And the man never said a word. He sat there and smiled. And he drove the women back and forth from church. A chauffeur. And this is so typical. I saw another young Christian woman in her 20s. And she sent me a picture of her fellowship group at her church. And she was a leader type herself. And so I was kind of poking fun at her. I said, where are the men? How come you don't have any boys in your fellowship group? How come they're always on the back row? Some, they, they, they do have some Christian men in Christian meetings, but there's the women in charge of everything. Why do you think people don't want to join, the men don't want to join the Chinese Christian church? There ain't no men role models. That's why. You think feminism does, is good for your family life? Let's take Sarah Palin. Remember her? She was the conservative vice presidential candidate with John McCain running against Obama. And she prided herself on being a feminist. Now, she was a conservative feminist. So that's not quite the same thing as a liberal feminist. But she talked about how she hunted polar bears and she had a reality show where she's out hunting things with her bow and arrow or whatever she was hunting with. And she rode motorcycles and motorcycle rallies. And she was a leader on her basketball team in college, I remember. And on and on and on. And now she's running for vice president. She was governor of Alaska for a while. And I remember reading a homeschool writer saying, why do we, as Christians, and she, and Sarah Palin is an evangelical Christian, and this homeschool writer said, why would we want to vote for somebody who's doing this? Because she's exhibiting by her life everything we don't believe. And I thought about that, and I was torn because I liked Sarah Palin. I didn't like who she was running with. I considered him an absolute disgrace. But she, I liked, and I was willing to hold my nose and vote for John McCain if it would get Sarah Palin close to the presidency. Well, what's happened since then, Sarah Palin's daughter, I think she got pregnant outside of wedlock, and then she had all kind. there's all kind of marital problems in her daughters. And then just recently, Sarah Palin's husband filed for divorce, and Sarah Palin said she was blindsided. She had no idea it was coming. Folks, men do not like feminist wives. They don't like it. You want, Ladies, you want to keep your marriage intact? Find out what feminist believes, and then run the other way and believe exactly the opposite, and you will be extremely happy. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with this screed. First Timothy chapter 2 is finished. In our next audio, we'll discover what Paul thinks the qualifications for elders should be. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 